opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 33, the story of Jan Broberg's abductions by Robert Birchtold. And you didn't say that incorrectly. It is abductions, plural. Which is kind of crazy to think about. How did yes. he, how did someone get away with this multiple times? This whole case is going to blow your mind. It's a terrible kidnapping case. Very manipulative man. He just worked his way into that family and was able to do some really bad things. When you were telling me about this in the last episode, I was like, there's no way this is real. And then I think you told me about the documentary that is on Netflix about it. I mean, it's mind-blowing. Anyone who watches it, I think, will have the same opinion. You can't watch it and think this is normal. You can't believe a family went through this. It's on Netflix right now. It's called Abducted in Plain Sight. Do we want to talk about it now or should we save it for the end when? We'll save it for the end because I use a lot of what I learned in the documentary in this episode. We had to be very caffeinated for this one. Yeah. yeah this is my third cup of coffee. It's a lot. <laughs> and I'm not even keeping count. <laughs> well, I'm ready whenever you are. Okay. I don't have my normal printed notes, so we'll see how I do with notes on the screen. It's going to work. A, it's a technical episode. It's like a teleprompter right in front of me. I like it. It is. Born July 31st, 1962, Jan Broberg was the oldest daughter of Bob and Mary Ann Broberg. She has two sisters, Karen and Susan. They were younger by two years each, and the girls all say that they got along very well and were close. They lived in Pocatello, Idaho. Her mom described the neighborhood as one of those where you could trust everyone and leave your doors unlocked. And I guess that was kind of common in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty common until, what, like the 80s? The 70s is when serial killers started to be more well-known, and people started thinking, oh, maybe we should lock our doors and close yeah. our windows. Yeah. So the 60s is still that, that safe period. I think so. Jan's mom was a stay-at-home mom, and her dad owned a flower shop in town and would end up running it for 40 years. Her father described her as a very cheerful young girl and full of energy. He said that Jan was the most outgoing little girl. The Broberg girls had really a very picturesque childhood at that time and felt loved by both parents. So, very good childhood. Parents were great. Everything was beautiful. Living their peaceful life, yes. it sounds like. Then, in June of 1972, Marianne met Robert Birchtold, his wife Gail, and their five children at church one day at choir practice. Marianne told her husband that she had met a new family and that some of the children were the ages of their children and how nice and friendly Robert was. Once Bob met Robert, Birch told, he was immediately drawn to his wonderful personality and they would talk about business and ended up becoming good friends. Bob said they just clicked. One of the first things he can remember in the early days of their friendship was a gift basket of fruit arriving at their home with a card from Robert, which said that they really enjoyed their family and it was signed by Birchtold. So does Birchtold have his own family at this point? Yeah, he's married with five kids. Okay. Sounds like he's a nice guy, apparently. He was a very charming guy. And we know someone's a little too charming. You gotta think about that. Yeah, like, it's, it's a little off-putting to me. Especially now that we have <laughs> yeah, done true. all these episodes. <laughs> That's true. If you're too happy and charming and all up in my face about it, I don't trust you. Yeah, there's something up. There's definitely. very much something up. Because even highly caffeinated, I wouldn't say we're charming. I don't think I've ever been charming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would ever use that to characterize myself. So Bob thought that Robert was this really nice guy. Marianne Broberg also became good friends with Robert's wife, Gail, although Gail was much more introverted compared to her husband, Robert. Jan would later say that it was like a best friend for everyone and that the Brobergs had some of their favorite family times while with the Birchtolds. Robert would drive them to school and come over daily to play with all of the Broberg kids. He was like the fun dad, I guess. But if there's this man, this neighbor coming over to play with the kids every day, that's kind of strange. I think so, too. Like, you would think adults would want to kind of hang out with the adults instead of right. just 
your kids. Uh, yeah, like every day you come over just to play with the kids. and But maybe they thought he just had a very youthful outlook on life. I don't know. It, there needs to be boundaries. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being friendly with the kids. I mean, obviously. That you should, should be, be nice, right? Yeah, but... When you take it to that level where you're always there just for the kids, it's just a little creepy. Yes, but that's what we think now at this time, but... They think it's innocent. Right, it was the 60s, and we'll go into how they viewed it at that time. Okay. Even though he would play with all of the children, when he would go over to the Brobergs, everyone started to notice that he paid more attention to Jan. Marianne said that she and her husband did start to notice this fascination he had with Jan and that it annoyed them and was a little disturbing, but they didn't think much more about it at that time. To Jan and the family, Robert eventually became Uncle B, or just B, to them, and he would end up calling Jan different nicknames, but the one she remembers most was Dolly. To her, he was like a second dad, and she loved him like a father and trusted him. He had built a strong connection with the family, so there were no red flags the afternoon of October 17, 1974, when Robert came to the Broberg's house to take Jan horseback riding. Marianne was hesitant at first because it was a school night and Jan had piano lessons that afternoon, but Robert offered to pick her up from her piano lessons and take her to horseback riding and then bring her back home by dinner. So it seems fine. It doesn't seem fine for me. <laughs> Jennifer says no. It hasn't seemed fine from the start. <laughs> no. I, to me, it's like he's honing in. On this child. Yes. What would make it seem normal is if he's already got five kids. If he was coming over, bringing his kids, and they were all kind of like playing With together. All of his five kids and Jan. Like, hey, I'm taking my five children to go horseback riding, and one of the kids is the friend with Jan. Like, they were best friends. So, oh, can Jan come along too? But he was just taking Jan. It was like special time with him and Jan. Strange. I don't understand this dynamic here. But clearly, he was very charming and... I guess, had the family trust him. They did. They trusted him. When Jan got into Robert's car after her piano lesson, he told her that he had brought her allergy pills and she could take one before they go horseback riding. Oh, hell no. So she took it and they drove off. Jan has no recollection of the horse stables or much of anything immediately after taking the pills, so she feels like she must have passed out pretty quickly. When Jan didn't return home for dinner, her parents contacted Gail... Robert's wife, and she came over and told them not to call the police because they would probably be back any minute. Just running and late. And this is, I mean, this is the wife, his this wife. Is, this is his wife, yes. And she, she probably doesn't know what's going on, and she's and she trusts him as well, so she's probably like... Maybe. We'll have to get into that later. Okay. That's what I would be thinking. Like, okay, this is the wife telling me... She trusts her husband. They're going to be back anytime soon. And they're our friends for over two years. I'm, nothing can be wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. I can see how it wouldn't raise any flags. Like, they're just going to let it go at that point. I just want to give an extra warning. We are going to discuss child molestation, child rape. Yeah. If that's a trigger for you, then this is your warning right here. Yes. Jan remembers waking up and it was dark and she had a sensation that she was moving. She had straps around her ankles and wrists so she couldn't move. She heard a monotone voice talking in her ear and she could make out a little white intercom box by her pillow. She immediately thought that she had been kidnapped by a UFO. She kept going in and out of sleep. Then she woke up and the restraints were off and the two alien-sounding voices who said they were Zeta and Zethra informed her that she was part alien. Her mother was her biological mother, but her father was not her biological father. She had an alien father from another planet. And she speaks about her reasoning at the age of 12 and that she felt like she was in the middle of a Christmas story that she had heard every year at church, that Joseph was like her dad. He took care of Jesus, but really the father of Jesus was God the Father. And this was Jan talking about it in the documentary. Okay. So she was just thinking it, it was kind of similar. Just... She said it sounded exactly like a Christmas story that she had heard every year. So it made sense to her. The alien voices went on to tell her that they had an important mission for her. She was to let the male companion perform and that they were to have a child by the time she was 16 to save the planet. They further told her that if she could not perform, they had a backup plan and that was to use her sister Susan, who was also half alien and half human, and that she would be taken. Then they told her to go to the front of the motorhome to meet the male companion. 
She walked to the front and said she saw B, Robert, laying there on the couch with his eyes closed and blood on him. She said she felt relief to see him because he was this person she trusted, but she was worried that he was dead, so she started shaking him to wake him up, and she started crying. So Robert starts to come to and tells Jan this story of what had happened and said that they were driving to go horseback riding when he saw this white light coming down from the sky, and the car started to move and shake. He tells Jan that they must have been taken by this light, but Jan tells him, no, they're still here and they have a mission. She said she knew in her head that he was the male companion they were referencing and said that the whole thing about him being this 40-year-old man and she being a 12-year-old girl seemed very strange to her, but she also now believed that she was half alien, so she thought she was strange now. In the documentary, she said that when you isolate someone and they are scared, you can get them to believe anything. Well, let's remember she is a child. 12 years old. And she, of course she's going to, she's terrified. She wakes up in this space where she doesn't know where she's at. Weird voices talking out of a box. Yes, talking about how she is... Half alien. Half alien and supposed to have a baby at 16. By 16 to save the planet. You can't blame her for believing that. No, she's 12. He knew that. He manipulated her. But what a strange freaking story to come up with to manipulate this child. He planned all this out, clearly. It makes you think he's done this before, because this is so extreme and, like you said, planned. Mm -hmm. Like, how would he know, like, this is what will work, you know? Another master manipulator. It kind of sounds like a cult leader. I think he would have been probably a successful cult leader. We find out all the people he's manipulated, he definitely would have been. And how he brings in aliens, because you know... Aliens and God Uh, always come into it. You wake up aliens and you've got a great cult. That's what we need to do. We need to add aliens into our coffee cult. I thought they were already um, in there. Are they? I mean, we... We need some cool names for them, though. Okay. We'll think about those. Yeah. Okay. So the day Jan left with Robert was on a Thursday. And then on Friday, Bob and Marianne made no calls to the police, remember? For about two days, they did nothing. And then on Saturday morning, Marianne called the FBI, but the message said that they were closed and provided another number for her to call. Oh, I didn't know the FBI closed. <laughs> well, it, was the, it was the weekend. They got to go home, too. I suppose. <laughs> Crime stops on the weekends. You didn't know that, Jennifer? I had no idea. <laughs> Unfortunately, Marianne said that she didn't want to get all of these people worked up over nothing. and so Over nothing? <laughs> and so they waited another day and said that if Robert and Jan weren't back by Sunday, then they would call and get help. So they're still giving him more time away, thinking we're just getting worked up over nothing, which, of course, I don't know where my kid is for like 10 minutes. I'm already about to call the police because that's... (laughs) You got it on speed dial. Uh, Yeah. And so I don't understand days, but again, this was... I'm trying to imagine this is the 60s in this very... Trusted neighborhood. Yes, this idyllic neighborhood where these things didn't happen. And I guess if you have no reason to think that something would go wrong, then you wouldn't. But still, two days is a long time. Well, even more than that, because she went missing on a Thursday. And here it is. They're going to wait till Sunday to do anything. Four days. Gail, where is Jan? (laughs) (laughs) Gail. (laughs) Okay. Jan said that she felt like she had been drugged a lot of the time during those first few weeks because she doesn't remember a lot. But there were these books in a cupboard that she remembers were out, and they were books about sex. Then at one point, she says the voices in the box tell her that it is time now to ask the male companion to do what makes people happy. Drink coffee? That's what I was about to say. We're always on the same page. So we're the coffee maker. (laughs) That's what makes us happy. Yeah, but... Unfortunately, that's not what he was grooming her for. And it is so sad because in the documentary, she starts tearing up at this part. And she's an adult in this documentary. And you can tell it is hard for her to speak about it. She said that she doesn't remember the kind of violent rape most women describe. She said that he would insert his penis just slightly when he would rape her. And it seemed like he would want it to be an enjoyable experience for her like it was for him. She starts crying at this point and says that there was a fan in the ceiling of the motorhome and she would look at the leaves while he was raping her to be distracted from what was happening. And remember, she's 12 years old. 
this poor girl. I mean, she's, I mean, a woman now, but she's traumatized. Yeah. And he was messing with her mind because he made her, well, I mean, aliens, aliens, but then also to make it seem like he was trying to make it pleasurable for her too, is him still messing with her mind. He was raping her, but look how he manipulated her mind for her to think that he was trying to make it a pleasurable experience for her. That's true. It's very sad. And he's such a creep, such a pedophile. Yes. October 22nd, 1974. This is day five of Jan's disappearance. The FBI was finally contacted. Five days she's gone and they came out to speak to Jan's parents. Both Bob and Marianne told the FBI that Robert Birchtold was a family friend now of two years, a local businessman and a member of their church. So he can't be a bad guy, right? Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) In church? What? He had a solid standing in the community as a good and trustworthy person. The Brobergs couldn't imagine that anything bad had happened or that Robert had malicious intentions with their daughter and kept telling the FBI that Robert couldn't have kidnapped her. He probably just went somewhere with her. And the FBI agent is interviewed in the documentary. And do you remember when he has to drill it into their minds? He says that she was their daughter and he took her. That is kidnapping. Yeah. And, and they were like, it kind of like blew their minds. Like, oh, oh. They trusted this person so much. Yes. Like they wouldn't have even thought that was a possibility. Not at all. So when the FBI agent went over to Robert's home to interview Gail, she told them about a storage unit they had where they stored their motorhome. The FBI went to the storage unit and the motorhome was gone. Now the FBI is conducting an investigation into obviously what is now a kidnapping. They're reaching out to local authorities and, of course, other states and even the borders of Mexico and of Canada. And do they ask Gail? She says she doesn't know anything. So where are they? We're going to find out. Oh, gosh. Did you not watch the documentary? I mean, I watched it a few days ago. (laughs) You know know how my memory is. (laughs) I'm the same. I'll I'll binge so many things. I'll forget what I binged like yesterday. Yeah. And then I'll confuse it with something else. (laughs) Well, that's good. You'll be surprised again. I will. Okay. Then the sheriff's office reports an abandoned vehicle with a smashed out driver's side window and blood on the inside of the driver's side door like where the window is. It was Robert Birchtold's car. But when the FBI took a look at the vehicle, they noticed that the window had been broken from the inside. So they believe it was for Robert to have an excuse that someone had kidnapped them. Oh, yeah. He's trying to set the scene. He's already set up the scene. Of course. They also noticed only one set of footprints. So they believe Robert carried Jan into the motorhome, which they also saw tire tracks for nearby, which makes sense because he had drugged her. So he probably had to carry her because she was passed out. Yep. That makes sense. At this point, the FBI were pretty confident that Jan was taken by Birchtold, but they were not sure where he went with her. They sent out an APB to all law enforcement. And like I said, they contacted officials at the borders of Mexico and Canada in case he tried to take her out of the country. The search lasted for weeks. Marianne said that in the first three weeks, friends and even people they didn't know in the community came out and offered support and kept telling the family that Robert wouldn't hurt her and she would return okay. During this time, the FBI spoke to a lot of people in the community and discovered that Robert had a fascination with young girls. You don't say. Mm -hmm. His own brother states in the documentary that Robert was a sexual pervert and said that he always knew his brother was a pedophile. One memory he shared was that after his parents had left to go somewhere, he had caught Robert messing with his sister, who was six at the time, and Robert was around 12 or 13. What? Yeah. From a young age, it sounds like he was going down a bad path. Yeah. And that makes you wonder about his own kids. I don't think the documentary talked about his kids, did it? I don't think so. I didn't. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't even know if they've come forward. Obviously, if he messes with his own sister. I think the sister wasn't his biological sister. Oh. The sister was a stepsister or something. Still. Still. Absolutely still. And she's No six. excuse. No. Oh, gosh. These poor little girls. The FBI agent state that this was the first pedophile case he came across It was something the FBI hadn't taught him much about, but it made his skin crawl learning about how Robert had tried to get two other little girls in town, but the parents had cut him off. Then he found the Broberg family. Robert's number one goal was to get close to the parents and then separate Jan from her family. One thing Robert had done before the kidnapping was to tell the family that since Jan was getting older, she should have her own space or room. 
So he built a wall between Jan and her sister in the bedroom that they shared. He, this, yes. this other person came in and built a wall. He's doing everything to be around her. And they say, like, looking back on it, her sister said that it was just an excuse for him to go over there and be around Jan. Obviously, they don't think anything of this man. Right. Negatively, anyway. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have because they trusted him. But in thinking back on this, it's... Like, kind of a manifestation of what happens. Like, he builds this wall and it isolates her. And then what does it end up doing later on? It, it isolates her. her. Yeah. From her whole family. He knew what he was doing. Oh, yes. Prior to the first kidnapping, Jan remembered going over to the Birch Tolds for sleepovers and they had a giant trampoline in the backyard. So the kids would sleep outside on the trampoline. One time, Jan remembers waking up at night and being aware that her underwear was down by her ankles. She said she felt scared and noticed B was lying next to her and he had his hands on her. He told Jan that she had been tossing and turning a lot and that she must have gotten uncomfortable and taken her panties down. Jan said that it seemed plausible because what was not plausible to her was that this person, whom she trusted like a father, had done anything to harm her. Right. I mean, he's brainwashed her, really. Right. And she's 12. She's not thinking, or she may have even been younger, like 10 or 11. At that point, she's not thinking anything bad. You don't think those things at a young age. Someone who you see as a father figure, for sure. Jan had also been on several trips with the Birchtolds before, some with both families and sometimes alone with the Birchtolds. On one of these trips in 1973, Jan's sister remembers they were all at a dinner and Jan started acting strange and swaying back and forth at the table. Robert said that he had better take her back to the room because there is something wrong with this child. Jan remembers being carried into the motel and was groggy and in and out of consciousness. She remembers waking up and seeing Robert naked in the room. On another trip, Jan was with the Birchtolds, but her parents were not. Another neighbor had met up with the family at a lake, and the neighbor remembers feeling like the interactions between Robert and Jan were not normal, and he actually told his wife that he didn't ever want any part of that and would not be vacationing with the Birchtolds ever again. That dad knew it was up. He probably saw it wasn't a normal interaction between an adult and a child. Yeah, he's like, where are her parents? They're not here. And why are you guys so close? That's disgusting. He obviously probably was not as close to B or Robert. He said, obviously, there were two other families that he had tried to get to the little girl before that had cut him off as far as, like, we don't want anything to do with you. So some people recognized that he was a predator or that something was off and basically shut him out. But you know these predators. They keep searching until they find that very trusting family they can get into. Yeah, you're right. You may wonder, like, how he even got the parents to trust him so much. They met at church, right? So Yes. Okay. And they were neighbors. Marianne remembers Robert asking her to come into town to bring him lunch. He would compliment her, and he had a charisma that she said her husband didn't have, and it was nice to hear things from Robert. He would give her all these compliments and stuff. One time, they went to a church function in Utah. They drove together and took a ride into the mountains and started kissing, and then they drove back home, and she said that she had thought about it every day since. Oh, wow. So there's some infidelity happening. Yes. This part's going to shock you, too. There's a lot of shocking parts in this episode. Bob Birchtold speaks about Robert being very knowledgeable in the sexual field, those are his words, but that he did not have a good sexual relationship with his wife, Gail. One day, Robert came into Bob's flower shop, and Bob could tell that Robert was very disturbed. Robert asked him if he is free to go for a ride, so Bob did. When they were driving, Robert tells Bob that he couldn't stand his wife and needed to have sex. Then he asked Bob if he could give him some relief, and they start laughing. At first, Bob was hesitant, but Robert kept pushing him and saying things like, Oh, Bob, it's just kids stuff, and I've got to have relief. Bob states in the documentary that he reached over and relieved Robert in an act of masturbation. Bob actually cries a little telling this story. It's <laughs> it's shocking. I was like, so he's got the wife and the husband? And the child. And the child. Uh, but not at this point. I'm sure this is prior to this everything. This is prior to the kidnapping. Mean, what does he mean by it's just kid stuff? Kids should not be doing this. So that right there should tip you off to this guy's sick. Yeah, and I just need some relief, so I'm going to ask you to <laughs> yeah. to help me with that. Yeah, and it's like, why don't yes. you do that yourself what? if you have such an issue? Right, pleasure yourself. I got things to do. Took me from my flower Robert, shop to I ask know. me to do this. I'm for just going to prepare the arrangements. <laughs> 
well, not Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so that happened. He was very emotional about it. I mean, okay, it is a serious thing. It, it really is. And I know he, they are victims. I think he just found people who were very trusting. Vulnerable, yeah, maybe trusting. and vulnerable too, because um, like the wife was saying, she didn't feel that her husband was complimenting her and things like that. And so he comes in and he does all these things to make her feel good. And then the thing with Bob, I think he just manipulated that man. I it just it's, you, cra- it's a crazy story but it happened and he talks about it in the documentary and like you say it's kind of like they look for people who they know they can manipulate and they know what they can say to make people do these things and that's why i say like he'd be a cult leader for sure he would oh yeah and it's an insane story. It is. So he is trying to get the daughter during these years while going at the wife, going at the husband. It's a lot. And it's kind of like now he has this information against them, kind exactly, of. Exactly. Because he will use it against them later. That was his whole plan because he would later tell the FBI that he entered into a homosexual relationship with Jan's father so that he could break up the parents and have a relationship with Jan. He planned this out. I don't think he had feelings for either of them. I think he was strictly focused on Jan and how he could break up the marriage, break up, you know, this family structure and get to Jan. And he basically isolated all three of them. Mostly Jan, but he weaseled his way into a relationship with both parents. Like a divide and conquer. Yes. It was also discovered that in January of 1974, Robert Birch told was reprimanded by the High Council of the Church of Latter-day Saints because of his involvement with another young girl. The LDS Church offered to counsel him, and he went to California and received therapy for his obsession with young girls, most specifically his obsession with Jan. We've talked about this before. Does therapy to help with, like, obsession with children actually help i don't even know if it does well and listen to this this is not a normal therapist so when he returned home he told bob and marianne about being treated for the abuse he suffered as a child and told bob that he had had sex with an aunt when he was just four years old he told them that part of his therapy was to spend some time alone with Bob and Marianne's daughters, and that Bob could call the doctor if he had any questions. But Bob said that he trusted him, so Robert would go into Jan's room and lay down next to her after she fell asleep. The FBI investigation discovered that this psychologist had had his license revoked, and he had given Birch Told these weird tapes to play at night while he lay next to Jan and molested her. Birch Told used sleeping pills so that Jan wouldn't wake up. Bob and Marianne now say that they don't know how they could have been that gullible, but they didn't know what a child molester was and couldn't imagine anyone doing things like that to a child. The FBI found out that Robert Birchtold slept in Jan's bed four times a week for six months, right up until the day she was taken. The FBI agent said that it was the most difficult case that he had ever had and believes the Brobergs were naive and didn't know things like this happened. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer's about to throw up over here. <laughs> it's so he was sleeping in their house in, in their in, child's in bed. In Jan's bed, yes. For six months. And it's because the, the therapist told them that this is going to help yeah. him somehow. But was this something he really believed or is it... Oh, it's just another angle for him to use to to get near Jan, I think. I think so, too. I, the therapist sounds like a pedophile, too. He does. All of this is, like, he unbelievable. He lost his license, obviously, for some reason. Right. For some reason. Mm-hmm. But we can see why. Yeah. So if you're thinking about the parents, I think they were very naive because, obviously, they couldn't imagine anyone doing things like this to a child. So in their head, if you don't know a fear, can you even guard or protect yourself from it? I just think that they really had no knowledge about what child molestation was. They were like good parents as far as loving their children, but they were just unaware of the evil that's out there. And that's very true. I think you're right. You have a point where if you don't even know what a potential danger is, you don't know that it's going to be exposed to something like that. So, And you don't know what's happening. Robert Birch told knew this. Absolutely. And it's more common now. We've seen it. And so it's like we can immediately spot the red flags. Yes. But I guess back then it just wasn't as common. Yeah. Maybe not in at that time in the 60s in a small town. And with parents who literally had no idea what a child molester was. Yeah. 
November 20th, 1974, this is now day 35 of Jan's kidnapping, Robert calls his brother, Joe, and asks him to call Jan's mother to get written permission for him and Jan to come back to the U.S. and get married because they were married in Mexico, but it wasn't legal in the U.S. In Mexico, a person 12 years of age can get married. So Joe calls Marianne and asks her, and she says, absolutely not. Joe tells her that Robert is a dead man then because they won't let him back into the country. So then Joe, in the documentary, he's like, my brother needed to come back here. And so he calls the FBI and lets them tap his phone so they could try and find Robert and Jan. Sounds like Joe kind of knew what he had to do to get get (laughs) him to come back. I think so. He knew what his brother was about. And he was like, he just, he needs to get back here so that kid can come home. So they end up tracing a call from Robert to Joe and find a hotel in Mazatlan, Mexico, where he was making the calls. The Mexican police were contacted, and they ended up finding the motorhome where Robert was keeping Jan. The police break down the door to the motorhome and take Robert and Jan to a Mexican prison. They are kept in separate cells in a dark, what sounded like kind of a basement area. She said it smelled like... The, like mildew. Yeah, like mildewy, and it was just um, really scary for her, the whole experience. But All of this is horrifying as a 12-year-old. The fact that this is real, this really happened to a person, is terrible. So Robert gave one of the guards his gold ring so that he could talk to Jan, and he told Jan that she had to tell her parents that he had taken her on vacation, but that he had made a mistake and took her too far away. And this is where he proceeds to tell her that he was visited by Zeta and Zethra, you know, the two aliens that she believes are real, and they said there were four things she could not talk about. The first was about Zeta, Zethra, and the alien planet. The second was about the relaxing pills he gave her. The third was about the mission, and the fourth was about the sexual experiences they had. See, and of but, course she's going to believe of this. Of course, she's, she believes this is real, so she is not going to say anything. I mean, she's terrified, and then, of course, I'm sure she's, like, wondering, this is going to save the planet, and what are the repercussions if I do tell somebody? Yes. Speaking of repercussions, he went on to tell her that she couldn't have any type of contact with other men, including her dad, and that if either of them, so Robert or Jan, talked to anyone about these things, then her sister Karen would go blind Her dad would be removed, which she knew that to mean killed. Her sister Susan would be taken. And she, Jan, would be vaporized. So this 12-year-old girl believed that they had the power to take their spirits and she would no longer exist. And she does mention this in the documentary that it scared her a lot. Her family was very religious and they believed the souls would live on after the body died. And so the idea of having no afterlife terrified her. So he knew what to say. He knew exactly how to manipulate this poor child's mind. It's just crazy the extent this guy will go. Yeah. Mind-blowing. I just feel so bad for everyone that was involved. Well, it's not over. When Jan's parents got to Mexico, the first thing Jan asked them after she saw them was what was going to happen to B. And she got upset when she found out they had called the FBI. On the plane ride home, Jan wouldn't sit next to her dad. Bob says he told his wife, she's not our Jan. I don't think our problems are over. And he felt so much sorrow on the plane. When he said no contact with her dad, does that mean like you can't even communicate with him? Yes, I think he just, in his sick mind, it sounds like he was telling her not to be around other men, have other men touch her because he wanted to do that. Well, yes. he's a sick pervert. So he's like, don't let any other men touch you, even your dad. And also, if she's not going to hug her dad and things like that, that's going to distance her. And then she's probably less likely to open up to him. Yeah. Further isolate. Further isolation. Yep. So Robert was brought back to the U.S. to face the kidnapping charges. When Jan was taken to the doctor for an examination to see if there had been sexual abuse, the doctor told her parents there did not appear to be any because her hymen wasn't broken. She ended up going back to school and said everything seemed fine on the outside, but she says that in the back of her mind was this constant concern for where B was and if he was okay when she was going to see him, and how she was going to be with him now to finish the mission. Jan's dad showed her the article about the kidnapping. Jan stuck up for Robert and told her parents that the article wasn't true. She kept distance between her family because she was scared something was going to happen to them since she hadn't completed the mission. And I have a little note here. Doesn't this sound like Stockholm Syndrome, where a person who is kidnapped starts to have feelings for 
Oh, absolutely. And it sounds like she, it sounds like she already, even before she was all kidnapped. He was like a father to her. So she had a connection with him that way. Yes. Yeah. An innocent connection. And then he twisted it into a sick connection, obviously. Yeah. And I'm sure that was very confusing for her. Yes. And she talks about that a lot. The FBI told the Brobergs to stay away from the Birchtolds. But do you think they did, Jennifer? No. (laughs) You're right. So on Christmas Eve that year, Gail Birchtold came over and asked to speak to Bob alone. So Gail, now she's coming over. Oh, here's Gail. (laughs) Here's Gail now. (laughs) So when they came out of the den and Gail left, Bob told Marianne that Gail had asked them to sign affidavits asking all charges to be dropped and stating that Robert had permission to take Jan on a trip to Mexico. Gail had threatened to expose the sexual relationship Robert had with Bob. When I was watching the documentary, I thought that she was like, you know, this unaware wife. She didn't know what was going on because a lot of times you do hear about that where the wife doesn't know, wouldn't think your husband's a child molester. So exactly. Maybe she had this naive mind too, like the Brobergs did, but she's going over there manipulating them too. So I do not feel bad for Gail. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of like she's supporting whatever he's doing. Sure is. And why would you even threaten to expose that? Because... That makes you look stupid. I bet she knew. Or Robert told her there's no way they're going to want that exposed. So just use this to manipulate them into signing the affidavit. But still, why would you use infidelity against yourself (laughs) to expose someone else? Because he didn't care. Infidelity compared to child molestation? Well, I know that he doesn't care. But the fact that Gail would use that, it makes her look like... Well, think about Gail. Would you rather be married to a child molester? It's all It's all bad. He's a kidnapper, you know? Kidnapper, child molester, or he had sex with the neighbor man. Of the two, hey, my husband got a little on the side from... Mr. Bristol. I would be like, get me away from this guy. (laughs) This guy sucks. He's awful. I don't know what Gail saw in him at this point. At first, like I said, I thought she was another victim. Sounds like he manipulated her too. Well, he he did, but she kind of also went along with things. Yeah, but then you're going over there and trying to threaten these parents and I... I just couldn't get on board with that it's one. It's hard to so have I, sympathy. I don't have sympathy for Gail after I heard that. I thought, no, you're, you're just as bad, Gail. Come on. Marianne agreed that it would ruin Bob's reputation, and they both went and signed the affidavit stating that she was not taken by force or against her will by the defendant, Robert Birch told. Obviously, the FBI was pissed, as was the public, who actually... kind of puts them in a situation. Oh, it sure did. They have no witnesses now, so they had to continue... They had to postpone the trial. I mean, if you have no witnesses, what trial can you have? So the FBI was like, we're not dropping this. They told them, we will not drop this. We're going to postpone the trial. They were trying to figure something out. Good for them. Yeah, well, in the meantime, Robert moved to Utah and sold cars at his brother's used car lot. And Gail remained in Idaho with the kids. Yeah, I think I'd keep the kids away from him, too. I'd be like, yeah, you go. You go sell some used cars. I'll keep the kids right here. I know. I'm so disappointed in Gail. <laughs> <laughs> Tried to have faith, but yeah, she let me down. <laughs> she did. Then one night, Jan remembers waking up and finding Robert at her bed, and the voice box with Zeta and Zethra was on. Robert told her the mission was still on. They were making plans and preparations for them to be together, but to keep following the rules. Robert would get notes to her at school and tell her to go to a particular payphone to receive a message. When she would go to the phone, it would be the voice box telling her to meet Robert somewhere or to go to another location. Robert started writing her love letters, and she talks about how she would write back to him and how her feelings shifted from that of loving him like a father to that of loving him like a husband or a man, she says. It's just, like you said, twisted. Very. She doesn't even realize Jan would tell her mom that she missed B so much and wanted to marry him and have kids. She expressed that she felt a profound love for him and was so committed to him at this time. Again, from the manipulation, this poor girl. Okay, now we're in the spring of 1975. Robert would call Marianne daily and tell her that he loved her and wanted to marry her. She asked him why he married Jan in Mexico, and he said if she came to see him, he would tell her what happened. So she drove to his motorhome and Robert started complimenting her, telling her how beautiful she is, kissing her and saying that they could be happy together. They end up having sex 
And she says during the documentary that she loved him and that they continued for eight months with Marianne seeing Robert 11 times between April of 1975 and March of 1976. After the first encounter, Robert called Bob and told them about the affair. Bob ended up filing for divorce at one point and took the girls when Marianne got served with the papers. He was worried about Robert having access to his girls, which that was smart on him. He's thinking this is not good. And Robert would call Bob and tell him that he was going to lose his wife and his girls. Bob said at this point he would just hang up on him. I am confused. Now she knows that... He tried to marry her daughter. Marry her daughter. And now she is in love with him and having sex with him. I'm very confused. First of all, did he ever get divorced with with Gail? No, Gail's still over there. So he attempted to marry Jan, Mm -hmm. and that never went through, right? He did. He married her in Mexico. So he's technically still married to To his wife and to Jan. (laughs) And to Jan in Mexico, yes. And now he wants to marry Marianne. And she is also in love with him. She's in love with him, too. It's just... Yeah, he sounds like a cult leader, doesn't he? Absolutely. able to manipulate all these people. And they're (laughs) so, like, tunnel-visioned. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing. And then keep in mind, during this time, he was also raping the daughter. With um, Marianne, it was consensual, but he's raping the daughter. He's manipulated her. I just am so confused. (laughs) Yes. Finally, Marianne comes to her senses. A year later? and (laughs) And speaks to Bob. She said it was after she was served with the paper. She goes to like a divorce attorney. And I guess the attorney was like, you need to leave this dirt bag, Birch told. The attorney told Marianne that? Yeah, kind of like knocked some sense into her, I think. And then she went home. She sees Bob and they both break down crying. And they actually reconciled and decide they're going to work it out. They're not getting a divorce. They're not going to let him come between them. Well, good. Yeah, which obviously probably saved, you know, her other daughters from what could have happened. Who knows? If he had access to all the girls. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like Robert is actually in love with Jan. It just sounds like he's a predator and will do this with with other people or with other children. Right. So if it wasn't Jan, it would be one of her younger sisters. Right. Oh, yeah. Definitely. June of 1976, 20 months after kidnapping Jan, Robert Birchtold agreed to a plea deal in the kidnapping charges. He pled guilty to a felony charge of kidnapping and was sentenced to five years, which was reduced down to 45 days, and he was to report to jail in three months. Robert moved away to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and opened a water park family fun center. Oh, you know what? Hell I, no. Where the heck is he getting all this money to? He's like taking off for weeks at a time, kidnapping. I know. Is he? What, what is he doing? Is he a trust fund kid or something? I, I like, where's I don't know. all this money? Well, they're in Idaho, right? I don't know. Is there a lot of money in Idaho? It's potatoes, right? I, that's what I thought. <laughs> But but how no sick clue. he opens up a water park knowing kids. that this is like a family oh, place. They're yeah. going to bring the kids. Oh, yeah. Sick. sick. Jan begged her parents to go there to work. When her parents wouldn't let her, she started picking fights with them and her sisters. Jan's mom describes that time as being very difficult. And she said she wasn't able to manage Jan and her feelings. Jan, I guess, would have outbursts and scream at them. Of course, because at yeah. this point she thinks she's in love with him. Yes. Then Robert calls Marianne and says that Jan is coming out there, and if she didn't let her, Jan would start hitchhiking. And did she want that? So Jan's mom puts her on a plane and sends her to Jackson Hole to Robert. I know. That's all part of his plan. It is a part of his plan, his manipulation. Jan says that when she got there, it was all about him having sex with her, raping her, and that B told her he was divorcing Gail. Because I guess Gail's still around. Yeah. I mean, why is that even a factor right now? Because it seems like they're already married. In Mexico. Jan said she was happy to be with him and felt so in love during this time. Then Joe, Robert's brother, visits him in Jackson Hole and sees him around with Jan all the time and said that his brother seemed the happiest he'd ever been. But obviously with this little girl being around him, it was very strange. And the mother kept calling, wanting Jan to come back. You know, Joe is the one that was able to get Jan back by connecting the FBI with his tapped phone or to his phones. So the FBI tapped him, found out where Robert was. But I don't think he knew Jan personally until he went here. Okay, so this is kind of like his first introduction to Jan. Face to face, right. Obviously, Joe's like, this is not right. We need to send this child back to her mother. 
So Joe puts Jan on a plane to Salt Lake City, Utah, and when her mom picks her up, Jan is upset and says that she wants to go back and be with B. Remember that Jan thinks she still has to complete a mission to save the dying planet. So Robert starts harassing Marianne on the phone and telling her he will take Jan to South America and she'll never see her again. And Marianne is, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, she's like, this guy is a predator. I think Marianne is finally getting it. And she, she tells him to leave her and her family alone and she hangs up on him. So Bob's done with him. He can't get through to Bob. Marianne's shutting him out. He can't get through to Marianne. So he can't separate the parents now. He failed it trying to get them to divorce, that neither of them want to talk to him. Yeah, and now he's already made a threat that he's going to take her to South America. Yeah. So they're definitely probably going to be more on guard as well. Well, unfortunately, on August 10th, 1976, a note was left on Jan's bed that said she was leaving on her own without B, and that she wouldn't come back until her parents would let her be with B. And Jan was gone. So she just ran away. That's what the note, I think, wanted the parents to believe. But the family says it didn't seem like something Jan would write. Like the wording, it seemed like Robert probably told her what to write. Because it was very much not implicating him. It was like, I'm not with B. I'm by myself. I ran away. You know, just. Right. So it sounds very much like he was like, okay, write it this way. Say this. And then. And that way no one will suspect anything. Of course. And then you can complete the mission. Right. Robert calls Bob and Marianne and says that Jan called him and said she was running away, but that he didn't know where she was. But instead of calling the police, her parents decide to tell people that Jan is staying with a family member because they didn't want to have it out in the press that she was gone again. Man, they, <sighs> because they cared about what the, the Maybe, neighborhood would say. I guess so. What they would think. It was the 60s. People cared. Yeah. Your I would, reputation anything, in the community. I would want people to know, again, this guy has taken my child. Well, remember, they signed affidavits saying the first time they let her go freely. So, Damn. I know, they did them no favors, and I guess they're probably thinking that. That's true. Like, we just signed affidavits telling the FBI, this guy didn't take our daughter. She's gone again. What are we going to do? Are we going to call them and say, okay, she's, she's gone, and yes, he did take her this time. It puts them in a bad spot. It really does. So they waited two weeks before calling the FBI to tell them Jan was missing again. The FBI, of course, contacted Robert and knew he was involved in her disappearance, but he claimed he was so worried about her and that the FBI needed to find her. Yeah, because he I'm sure he's lying right. when he well, says he doesn't know where course, she is. I'm sure. Then Robert reports to jail and ends up spending only about 10 days due to good behavior. What the hell? Ten days on a first-degree kidnapping charge. You've got to stop letting predators out. Yes. Good behavior. <sighs> These are people who you think are good anyway. Exactly. So they know how to play nice. <sighs> Very good at that. Once he is out, he moves to Salt Lake City to live in his motorhome, and then he disappears. The FBI cannot find Robert or Jan. But Robert would keep calling the Broberg's residence to speak to Marianne and would tell her he had heard from Jan. Got to keep up the facade. Mm -hmm. The FBI told her to keep taking the calls so they could tape them and try to track Robert. He would tell Marianne during these calls that Jan had entered into prostitution to make money and that he hadn't seen her since the 31st of July, but he still wants to marry her and she still wants to marry him. And if Marianne was laying a trap for him, he would kill her. But Marianne snapped back and she was like, well, I'll have you killed. Good. <laughs> yeah, she was like, I'll have you killed if you're lying. I have brothers. Freaking finally. I know. She's, yeah, Marianne definitely snapped out of all of the trance she was under from him. Yeah, and saw him for the piece of shit he is. She did, yes. November of 1976, the FBI had been searching all of the trailer parks in Salt Lake City and finally found Roberts. When an FBI agent went up to the door, he let them in. And the agent saw giant pictures of Jan all around the motorhome, like a mausoleum, he said. Like, blown up pictures of her. The pictures he would take, it would kind of... Suggestive. Suggestive, yeah. And he was... He's just a sick pervert. Yeah, that, it seems like he kind of is, like, worshipping her or something. Yeah. Like, all of it is just... Disgusting. Yeah. But he told the agents that he didn't know where she was. He doesn't know where she is, but yet... I have all these printed out photos of her yeah. on my wall. There's, there's no obsession there, is there? Come on. It's not sus at all. Right. And the FBI knew this, but they didn't see her there. There was nothing that they could do at the time. 
Around this time, Jan calls home and speaks to her family and tells them that she's fine. She hasn't seen B since, you know, for a couple weeks. So she's, you know, she's not with him. I think he made her make the call. Oh, yeah. Definitely seems that way. Yeah, he's like, oh, the FBI is sniffing around now. So let's, okay, you need to call them and tell them you're not with me. Yeah, clear my name. Yep. And she didn't stay on the phone too long, but they play the call in the documentary. And it's so sad to hear like how excited her sisters were to hear her voice. And they're like, dad's home, please don't get off the phone. We're getting dad so he can hear your voice. And then the dad gets on the phone and they're just like, I love you. And you know, okay. And like, that's your child. And uh, you don't know where they are and what they're going through. I'm sure it's an emotional call for them. I'm sure at that same time, Jan knows she can't be like super affectionate with her dad either. So she's probably holding back. Yes. And I'm sure that's difficult for everyone, but especially the dad. Then on November 11th, the FBI, still tracking Robert, sees him go up to a payphone and make a call. After he leaves, the agents go into the phone booth and see on the phone book that he had written down a number. This is back when they had payphones and phone books. Jennifer's like, what is that? Oh, I know. I know what that is. <laughs> don't know if everyone will know, though. They're kind of gone now. Yeah. My youngest son was like, what is that thing on the corner there with the phone? And I was like, that was a phone. With the, with the glass booth? Yeah. I was like, oh, that was a phone booth. He's like, what was it for? I was like, we used to use it and call people. And he's like, what? Why? We didn't have cell phones. Yeah. You had to put a little quarter in. Or you could call time. Well, I don't know if this would, could you do this here? You would call time and then you would let the operator hang up, but then you would dial the number and you could dial for free. No, I I don't know. You don't know about that that scam? That high school scam? Yep. I was, you know, like 10 when <laughs> they, they, got, they got wise to it by the time you got into high school. That's right. Yeah. I, I always, you know, thought I had to put my quarter in. Got away with some free calls in high school that way. Is that a crime? I don't know. In California, we should check. Well, it's been what? I mean, <laughs> the statute has passed. <laughs> Back in the day. So the agents saw a number written on the phone book and traced it to a Catholic girl's school. When they contacted the school, they found out that Jan was there under the name Janice Tobler. Jan says that on August 10th, the first day of the second kidnapping, Robert had showed up at her window and taken her to Salt Lake City. There he had enrolled her in an all-girls school and told the school that he was a CIA agent and Jan's mother had died and they had escaped from Lebanon. What in the world? Elaborate story. This guy just keeps twisting his little lies, just building on this story. And anyone who just says they're a CIA agent, just gonna we believe just them? believe them. I don't, they're not even supposed to tell you if they're CIA, so that doesn't make any sense. Further, he told them that people were after him, so if anyone came looking for him, or Jan, that they shouldn't say anything. When federal agents came to get Jan, she didn't want to go. When she got home the second time, she said that the fun, vivacious child in her was gone now, and she was a completely different person. Of course. She's traumatized. She's got all this pressure on her. She's been kidnapped twice, so I'm sure she doesn't realize that is what happened to her. Yeah. And continually molested and raped by this man. But even her sisters say, after the first kidnapping, she came back, and it seemed like she was still herself. But the second time she came back, she was a completely closed off, different person. Like mentally, how do you handle all that? It's unimaginable, like mentally, what she was going through physically, all of it. So now Bob had received death threats from Robert because he was mad that they got Jan back. One night after Jan returns, Bob gets a call from a store employee telling him that the store was on fire. The FBI looks into the fire and discovers that Robert offered to pay a couple of guys he met in jail $1,000 a month if they burned down Atkin Florist, which was the flower shop Bob owned. They not only burned down the flower shop, they ended up destroying half a block of buildings. Those men were convicted, but they couldn't pin any charges on Robert, unfortunately, because it seems like he just gets out of everything. He does. Now, this part. Robert ends up being acquitted of the second kidnapping charge due to mental defect. He also beat the CIA impersonation charge. So just as a recap, the first degree kidnapping charges. He has two kidnapping charges. The first one, he is charged of the felony, but he only spends 10 days in jail. And then on the second one, he gets completely out of it. The arson charge, he beats that charge. The impersonating a federal agent, he beats that charge too. 
I mean, we know because of the affidavits, that's why they couldn't really go forward with the first one. But they still technically got him as far as he did plead guilty to it and 10 days in jail, which that's not serving for that kind of a crime, I don't think. Not at all. But because of the mental defect... And how did they determine this was a mental defect? Like, did he have to get psychologically evaluated? He probably just manipulated the court system. As he does with everyone Everyone, else. That is un- that is just crazy how someone could kidnap someone twice, Mm -hmm. manipulate the whole family, Mm -hmm. burn down someone's business. And impersonate a CIA agent. And in total, he spent 10 days in jail. Justice was not served? Not at all. In June of 1978, 18 months after Jan had returned home, she still believes there is a mission, but now she is older, turning 16 in another month. And she states in the documentary that she didn't hear from Robert much that summer, and she thinks it was because she was getting older and he was maybe losing interest because he likes young girls. Now she was starting to look like a young woman. Absolutely. She also states that she had the experiences necessary that summer for her to question the existence of aliens. And so one of the experiences was she went to a five-week-long drama camp at Brigham Young University, and she met a boy in the play. And he had taken her out and bought her ice cream. Jan immediately called home to check on her family because she was worried that him buying her ice cream was in some way going to set in motion all of the bad things that are going to happen. A male yeah, doing interaction that, with a male. Which she was not supposed to have, right. So when she calls her mom, her mom is like, I think I must have fed the dogs some bad food or something because they seem sick. And so Jan breaks down on the phone, she says, and she tells her mom it's her fault. She needs to come home. And her mom's like, no, no, no. It's fine. You just stay there. They're going to be okay. And so the next morning, Jan's mom calls and says, hey, I just wanted to let you know the dogs are okay. They're feeling better. And so here is where Jan has a split second thought of maybe those aliens aren't real. My dad isn't blind. My sister's okay. And everything is fine. But then she says immediately in her head, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I know you're real. That's her still being trapped by this The brainwashing. Yes. But it sounds like she's starting to think. It's breaking up a bit. There's things that are happening that are helping her to be able to question it. Then her birthday came on July 31st, and she had decided that if anything was going to happen, she's going to go to her sister, see if she would take over. And then if she didn't, she was going to get a gun, kill her sister, then kill herself to protect her and her sister from these bad things happening. So I guess so their souls would still be. Oh, so to make sure like the she aliens go blind and like that bad things wouldn't happen to her family and that her sister wouldn't be taken and that she wouldn't lose her soul kind of thing. Because remember, he told her that the aliens would take their souls. Yeah. And this is her 16th birthday, right? Yes. And July this is 31st. when she's supposed to get pregnant. Yep. And she didn't. She's like, well, I'm definitely not pregnant. Bad things are going to happen. So her birthday comes and goes and she has this plan and she wakes up and everything is fine. She has all of these different emotions that next day. She finally realized that the aliens aren't real. She also wanted to tell somebody but didn't know who. And she ends up telling her sister, Karen. Karen tells Jan that she needs to tell their mom. So that night, Jan told them what had happened. It took her about two hours to get everything out. And her sister said that it was really difficult hearing what had happened to Jan. And the mom obviously broke down in the documentary. It's so beyond comprehension. You don't imagine these things. And they didn't even think of child molestation. You know, they didn't even think predators were out there. Yeah. So So you're hearing all this stuff that you would never imagine could even exist. Then it happened to your daughter. Yeah. But she finally had the epiphany because when she turned 16... Nothing bad happened. The world was not destroyed. Exactly. 28 years later, Marianne published a book called Stolen Innocence about the experiences they went through. Jan and her mom go on a book tour and start talking about the book and to educate the public about predators like Robert Birchtold. But then Robert starts showing up to places that Jan is speaking and is telling the media that it's all lies. Because let's remember he only served 10 days for all this. Exactly. Jan ends up filing a stalking petition 
and has to show up in court to face him because he challenged it. She believes he challenged it just so he could see her, to be near her. Oh, yeah. A a sicko like that? I'm sure that's why he did that. Mm -hmm. Jan ends up getting a stalking injunction against him for the remainder of his life, which I guess is unusual because she said they usually max it out at three years, but she was able to get one for the rest of his life. Wow. Well, they probably realized (laughs) we need to protect her. Yes. After this injunction was in place, Robert shows up to an event Jan is speaking at where members of BACA, who are the Bikers Against Child Abuse, so where members of BACA recognize him and said, that's Birchtold, get him. (laughs) Thank goodness. You don't want to piss off some bikers. (laughs) No, and they're against everything you stand Uh, for. I love that. Yeah. The cops end up arresting Birchtold because he actually hit one of the members with his vehicle. And they arrest him. He has a gun, which as a felon, you can't have one. So he was charged with two felonies and two misdemeanors for having a gun and for hitting someone at the event with his vehicle. At the trial, the jury found him guilty, and the judge told him to come back next week for sentencing. Robert said even one day in prison was going to kill him, so he went home and drank all of his heart medicine with some Kahlua and milk and died. After he committed suicide, six other women came forward to say that they, too, had been sexually molested by Birchtold when they were younger. He had also previously been found guilty of rape in one of those cases and spent a year in jail. This was prior to meeting the Brobergs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he really had more than one felony. He sure did. And the fact that he had that prior charge, so Gail knew about it. That's true. Yeah. And then was it not in the system? That I don't understand. So he already had this rape charge, child rape charge. And when the FBI looked into this, they didn't have any idea. I don't about know. It? Like in the documentary, it's not clear. We talked about this in other episodes, how crimes weren't connected state to state. So it wasn't like a national database yet until was it the was it the late eighties? It was yeah, 90s? around that time, yeah. This had to have been in the seventies because he met the Brobergs in the seventies. So it had to have been late 60s, early 70s when he had this charge for child rape. And maybe it was in a different state or something. Could have been. Wow. Uh, so yeah. can't even face what he did. Except for that year that he spent in jail, which even that sentence is ridiculous for child rape. Yeah. They Justice was not, not served, served at no. all. So when asked if Jan has forgiven Birchtold, she says that forgiveness is a tricky word and that in her mind, not forgiving somebody only puts up a jail cell around yourself. And she can live with her tragedy without the tragedy running her anymore. But it has taken her some time to get to that place. Regarding forgiving her parents, she states that by helping them to forgive themselves, she has found healing and thinks that Birchtold was just a master manipulator orchestrating the situation and playing on her parents' feelings. Her parents hold a lot of regret, obviously, over letting him around Jan. And her mom said that she doesn't think she will ever be able to forgive herself. One of the last things Jan says in the documentary is that it's ironic that the one person she would like to forget about is the one person she thinks about every single day. This is where mind erasing would be wonderful after a traumatic event. I know, but she has to think about it every day. And she said every single day, almost every single day. How can you not? I mean, it's, it's so traumatizing. And he did stuff during a very impressionable time. She was a young child. I'm sure it affects, like, all of her relationships going forward. When it comes to forgiveness, like she said, it. I'm glad that she has been able to cope in the way that has worked for her. Yeah. Um, Does he deserve forgiveness? Most, like, not at all. Like you said, it's a personal thing. I don't think you have to necessarily forgive people for hurting you. But by holding on to it, you can't move on. So it's good to be able to move on from it. But something like that, I don't think you have to forgive somebody. Not at all. I think it's more of just being able to move past it. And like she said, it's not running her life. Right. Yeah. It's just something that's like in the back of her head every day, which is still, I I hate that. I know. Because you know, it's not in the back of his head that he did anything wrong while he was alive, but the victims have to live with it. It's terrible. It is. Jan Broberg has gone on to appear in over a dozen feature films. Some of her film credits include The Secret Keeper, Family First, The Book of Mormon Movie, and she co-starred with Elijah Wood in Maniac. She has also appeared in TV shows like Promised Land, Death Row, and in the WB series Everwood as Nurse Louise. Additionally, Jan is a veteran stage actress with starring roles in The Sound of Music, Jane Eyrie, My Fair Lady, and Carousel, just to name a few. Wow, good for her. Yeah, so she's very accomplished. 
Yeah. I didn't realize she was an actress as well. Yes. In all these different films and TV shows. I didn't either, because they didn't really talk about it in the documentary. But when I was looking her up, she has quite the credits to her name. Quite the resume. Yeah. Good for her. So she's now in her late 50s and has a son from a previous marriage and has remarried. And she continues to advocate for victims of sexual abuse. She's a rock star. Yes. Her attitude is so great. If you can watch the documentary, do it. It will turn your stomach. But it's very good to see her resilience and then how the family was able to come back together and heal from this. Right. I'm glad that everyone was able to find some sort of peace and resolution from this. They're all survivors. Yeah. But it's crazy how he had so many, how these people have so many people fooled. Yeah. And I guess it's that charm, right? It's it's deceptive. By the end of this, we'll never trust anybody. I don't trust anybody. That's true. Except for you. <laughs> well, yes, you. exactly. Yeah. We trust each other and that's it. <laughs> yes. We've talked about this before. Like our, our friendship circle is small, like a Cheerio. <laughs> yeah. We've used that analogy for a long time. Just, yeah. You have to get into the Cheerio. And... Yeah. If you're not in there, you're probably not going to get in there at right. this point. <laughs> yeah. Are yeah. we accepting new friends? No new friend requests accepted. <laughs> nope. They'll just be in the cloud. <laughs> Speaking of the cloud, can we talk about our DMs? Oh, of course. Which part of the DMs? <laughs> can we, the ones we get all the time about our relationship. Crack me up. Yes. But, Our romantic relationship? <laughs> is that what you mean? <laughs> yes. People are always sending us messages asking us, are you a couple? One guy was very aggressive about it, and he was like, so are you a couple or what? <laughs> what? I, I mean... Which our response is going to be like a standard, listen to the podcast, you'll find out. Yeah, that's that's best usually friends, how guys. we... We're best friends. You'll know when you listen. Yeah. So obviously he's not listening if he's asking those kinds of questions. So that's go, true. go do your homework. But I do like the ones where they send us flowers and oh, like it's continuous, like tea, wishing you well. And then the tea, this one person will send us pictures of coffee and tea with flowers around it. <laughs> Wishing us good fortune and things like that. So we'll accept it. <laughs> we, we take it. Uh, yes. We'll take that. <laughs> Sending us good vibes. Yeah. What's up next for us? What do you have? Do you have a cult episode? Girl, I'm looking for a good cult episode for us. Did you look into the Rescue Rangers one? I don't know if I'll have some, <laughs> some serious material for that one, but we'll, I'm sure we can chat about we can, it. We can touch on some of the ones you found in the process of searching, right? It, it is interesting to see what... <laughs> what people get sucked into? Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, it's always about God. Or aliens. Or aliens. Yeah. Those are... Or Disney characters. <laughs> <laughs> we, we found out. Yeah. I can see being obsessed with Disney, but as like a cult you're going to join where you really worship a cartoon character. I don't know. These fandoms can... Gets real. Get wild. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> so when, they, when you start worshiping cartoon characters... If you're not doing anything to hurt people, then okay. <laughs> like, it just may be your cup of tea. Fine. Like our cult. It's fine. Yeah, we're just obsessed with coffee. Yeah. And so I'm sure maybe we'll be on that list at some point. <laughs> <laughs> if we can get a large enough following. Yes. Right great. now it's just like five of us. We'll be number 125. <laughs> <laughs> but... Harmless cults. Yes. <laughs> Harmless cults. So we can just let those go. All right, so um, until next time, stay caffeinated, get hobbies, and don't murder people. Bye. Bye.